Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. There are only a handful of companies that have ever been valued at over a trillion dollars. There are the Chinese and Saudi state oil companies, and then there are the tech giants of the Pacific Coast. Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Alphabet, Meta, Tesla, and NVIDIA. Every company on the list is a household name but that last one. NVIDIA makes chips, so this is a return to the silicon of Silicon Valley. But the reason that NVIDIA is now one of the most valuable companies in all the world is that this Santa Clara company makes the type of chips that turned out to be crucial for AI. So we're going to talk about NVIDIA, Silicon Valley history, and artificial intelligence futures. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. My very first and shortest ever job was working as a research analyst looking at stocks for a hedge fund. It was 2004, and back then, Intel was a world-beating company, a chip giant, the direct descendant of the first chip companies in Silicon Valley. Back then, NVIDIA was a smallish company known mostly to computer gamers who bought the graphics cards that NVIDIA and its rival AMD made. But computer graphics, manipulating millions of pixels at a time at high speed, turned out to be the perfect hardware training ground for the most exciting thing happening in computing right now. Beginning in the late aughts, the new forms of machine learning that are now carrying the banner of artificial intelligence began to develop. The landmark demonstrations of AI and what was called deep learning or neural networks nearly all used NVIDIA's specialized graphics processing units, or GPUs. In a sense, as one research analyst summarized it, NVIDIA's GPU has become to AI what Intel's CPU was to the PC. And that's why, even though the company's profits are still relatively small, the company's valuation is nearly a trillion dollars. So, we spend the morning considering this company and what it would mean for the Bay Area to have yet another world-spanning tech giant emerge right here in the South Bay. We're joined this morning by Max Cherney, Senior tech reporter for Silicon Valley Business Journal. Welcome, Max. Hi, Alexis. Thanks uh, Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. We're also joined by Margaret O'Mara, professor of American history at the University of Washington. Welcome, Margaret. Hi, Alexis. Good to be here. Yeah, welcome back. And Cade Metz, technology reporter, largely covering AI and the span of things for the New York Times. Welcome, Cade. Hello. Thank you. So, Max, um, you know, I covered a little bit of it at the top this sort of NVIDIA, compressed NVIDIA history, when did the company start to branch off from being the sort of graphics card maker to being the sort of AI giant? 
Well, uh, that's a great question. R roughly in the 2006, 2007, 2008 uh, era of the business. Um, I, I'm not sure if the story is apocryphal or not, but Jensen uh, Huang, the CEO of the of the business and founder, actually, or co-founder, co uh, says that a, a researcher at um, uh, basically uh, stumbled on the fact that the, his gaming GPUs, Jensen's gaming GPUs, were really good for uh, certain kinds of computation uh, because he was running a, a, some, a research program. I think it was quantum physics or something like that. I, I don't I don't remember exactly, but uh, uh, Jensen says that uh, the the researcher's son suggested to him that he uh, develop <laughs> or he he use uh, gaming cards to to try out uh, the computation on his research. And so Jensen says that he got an email from this researcher uh, who basically was thanking him because he was now able to sort of complete his life's work within his lifetime because that's the amount of uh, performance increase. Uh, that that Jensen's GPUs were able to give give this researcher. So that sort of leads to the, the, a pretty important development, which uh, uh, Nvidia uh, makes this 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 developer framework uh, called uh, the Compute Unified Device Architecture. I know it's kind of a mouthful, but uh, you is that pronounced it. CUDA? <laughs> yeah, that's right, CUDA. Yeah. <laughs> so that sort of that leads to CUDA, which is which is what everybody uses to make these GPUs. Instead of programming them for gaming, it allows people to use them for anything they can think of, essentially. And that that framework, the CUDA framework, is is what has built NVIDIA into the uh, the AI powerhouse that it is now, mm -hmm. uh, and one of the reasons why it dominates that market. Yeah. Kate, I mean, as you were watching the rise of these particular techniques for doing machine learning. Were you like, oh, man, I wish I wasn't a reporter. I should buy NVIDIA stock. Or did you figure that some other chip makers would get in on it? Did you imagine back, you know, 10 years ago that NVIDIA would have this pretty dominant position? Well, it's a character flaw, but I'm a reporter and only interested in being a reporter. So I wasn't interested in buying the stock. But you did see this happening about a decade ago or more, that these ideas that are now driving chatbots like ChatGPT began way back in 2010, really, to take off. And researchers at places like Stanford and the University of Toronto started using these NVIDIA chips to build uh, what are called neural networks, systems that can learn tasks by analyzing data. Initially, this was image recognition and, and speech recognition, and we moved on to translation. But you could see this trajectory way back, way back then, and it has continued um, at an astounding pace. There are others that have tried um, to to capture some of this market. Others who have tried to build and have built chips to compete here. But the important part is is CUDA, um, as the two of you mentioned. It's an easy way, it's a familiar way for developers and researchers to use the chips. It's become a de facto industry standard. So although there are other chips that you can use here, and people do, most of the industry uses NVIDIA. Hmm. You know, Margaret, semiconductor history in Silicon Valley is obviously incredibly deep. I mean, it's right there in the name, Silicon Valley. Um, where does NVIDIA fit in this kind of big family tree of Bay Area companies that began when William Shockley arrived, you know, kind of back home with his Nobel Prize and bad management skills? 
<laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it is back to the future, isn't it? We're talking about a chip company. I mean, the chip companies made Silicon Valley, put the silicon in Silicon Valley. And NVIDIA is also you know, not a new company. It was founded in 1993. It's founded at this moment, actually, you know, really interesting moment in the Valley. Uh, it's a, It was a time actually of, of coming out of a, a decent amount of economic gloom um, in California generally, the end of the Cold War, you know, there was recession, um, the PC market had kind of plateaued. Uh, there was a lot of wondering what's the next big thing going to be, but there was also had been so much competition in the chip market, particularly from Japan um, in the 1980s, that it really put companies like Intel on the ropes um, and AMD and the other big players here. And so there was a real push to develop more sophisticated chips. Um, there was a uh, the uh, U.S. government was investing money in, in trying to encourage, help American companies do that. And so NVIDIA is kind of coming in at a moment when, um, this is also the moment when Silicon Graphics was a big uh, company, uh, that, you know, doing that, doing the, the sort of more powerful um, graphics, the uh, famously making the first dinosaurs for Jurassic Park. That was, right. a, that was a big headline <laughs> in the early 90s. And this is kind of right before the internet boom, right? This is just before. So it's kind of, uh, you know, it, it really has pretty deep roots and it's um, as does the pursuit of machine intelligence. I mean, the people have been trying to, uh, have been working on AI in, in the Valley as long as there've been chip companies. I mean, going all the way back to the age of people like William Shockley. Yeah. So interesting. We're talking about NVIDIA, the Bay Area's latest near-trillion-dollar company. We're talking Silicon Valley history and AI futures. Joined by Margaret O'Mara, professor of American history at the University of Washington, who's written one of the best books on the history of Silicon Valley. Also joined by Max Cherney, senior tech reporter for Silicon Valley Business Journal, and Cade Met, who covers this area as a technology reporter for The New York Times. We'd love to hear from you. What questions do you have about NVIDIA or the future of this version of AI? And here's another one specific to us here in this area. What do you think this AI boom will mean for us here in the Bay Area? The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. You can find us on all the social things. We're KQED Forum. You know, um, Max, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about sort of NVIDIA headquarters, right? I mean, these are kind of these metaphors for a company. You know, we know we have Apple has like their spaceship headquarters. What does NVIDIA's look like? I mean, they're pretty close by, actually. They are. They're, they're two. Um, if you look at them from the, from the top, they're two gigantic triangles. Uh, and and the triangle is very near and dear to the heart, as as you know, very near and dear to the heart of of anybody interested in computer graphics. Uh, one of the foundational uh, pieces of um, one of the, one of the foundational pieces of of, of graphic graphic tech. Um, the campus itself, uh, the, it, it's two separate buildings. Uh, one is called Endeavor, and it was opened in uh, 2017. Uh, it's roughly 5,000 square feet. Um, it's really similar to Apple's headquarters, actually. Five thousand or five hundred thousand. 500,000. 500,000. Okay. Yeah. yeah no 5,000 would be I was a like, little man, small. that's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's similar to Apple's headquarters in that it only has two floors. Um, and the reasoning is, is that the architects believe through, there's some research that shows us that uh, people are more likely to run into each other, like sort of, you know, uh, by chance and interact. And those interactions will lead to, you know, theoretically uh, a better business. Um, they opened the second office uh, called Voyager in 2022, and it's even bigger. It's uh, 750,000 square feet. Um, and, 
Yeah, they, this is this has been a project that dates back to 2007. This is on top of their initial original campus, which is across the road. Um, but yeah, they started to work on these two buildings in 07 uh, when they started to acquire the land. They put it on hold because of the recession in 08, yeah. and they revived it again um, in 2012, uh, and then again finished the first building uh, in 2017. It's it's a really remarkable structure. Uh, I, I have not seen a corporate headquarters like it yeah. uh, in, in my life. You know, one of the delightful things about Silicon Valley, from my perspective, is that right next door to a lot of these iconic headquarters, there's also like random auto body shops and like little food joints. I mean, what's the actual neighborhood around NVIDIA like? Well, Santa Clara is is a city that's um, I mean, at least from from my perspective, I know from its its uh, it's. there's a lot of data centers there. Interestingly enough, it's where many Silicon Valley companies build them, um, and and it's essentially because the power is very cheap. So, mm-hmm. so there's there's there there there's these swaths of the city that that are not like entirely covered with data centers, but uh, but that's sort of my impression. There's also a, a number of other chip companies that are headquartered there: uh, AMD, Intel, mm-hmm. uh, a, a startup called Cerebrus, uh, a, a number of uh, Cerebrus. I'm sorry, that may, they might be in Sunnyvale, but. Um, but I think of a pretty typical Silicon Valley uh, uh, city, uh, you know, on the peninsula, but uh, with a little bit of an industrial feel in some parts of it. Again, these big data centers are, are converted warehouses and they and they have uh, enormous power requirements. So there's all sorts of fancy looking or interesting looking equipment outside of them that, that help power <laughs> power all these. And many of them, by the way, run NVIDIA or have NVIDIA hardware inside of them for what yeah. it's worth. So interesting. We're talking about NVIDIA. As you may have seen recently, they touched a trillion dollars uh, as valuation, one of the few companies in the history of the world to ever do so. So we're talking about the company, Silicon Valley history, and the future that that valuation implies of artificial intelligence. Joined by Max Cherney, senior tech reporter for Silicon Valley Business Journal, Margaret O'Mara, professor of American history at the University of Washington, and Cade Metz, technology reporter for The New York Times. Would love to hear from you. What questions do you have about NVIDIA, this kind of infrastructure of artificial intelligence? And what do you think the AI boom could mean for us in the Bay Area? The number is 866-733-6786. Forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about NVIDIA, whose chips power 
a lot of the artificial intelligence applications like ChatGPT, which have been taking the world by storm, one of the fastest growing websites in the history of the world, uh, ChatGPT. Joined by Max Cherney, senior tech reporter for Silicon Valley Business Journal, Margaret O'Mara, professor of American history at the University of Washington, and Cade Metz, technology reporter for The New York Times. Margaret, question is for you, you know, there's so much out in the world right now about the potential for artificial intelligence to disrupt different labor markets. As someone who's studied the history of kind of Silicon Valley futurology, how do you read these predictions about, you know, the sort of uh, labor disruptions that could result from these technologies? Yeah, well, there's been worry about automation, uh, the effect of automation on jobs for a very long time. I mean, that goes back well before the digital age and the concern about com- computation and digital technologies displacing certain um, certain workers or classes of workers is, is an age-old one, so much so that in the mid-60s, President Lyndon Johnson commissioned a presidential commission to look into the matter um, and uh, when the tech was obviously quite different. So, um, you know, let's we can put that in context. I think there's also, you know, clearly there's a whole host of um, of use cases that are starting to emerge as possible, you know, truly disruptive things that the AI can now do. It's kind of, you know, look, this has been a very long process. This is something that computer scientists for more than 50 years have been predicting um, something like this happening, but the computer power hasn't been there and the the data hasn't quite been there. And now both have reached uh, a volume and a, and a scale that now it's possible. Now it's, mm-hmm. now it's tipping over. So it's, you know, as Cade was mentioning earlier, kind of that there's been a lot that's been going on for, you know, a decade that now is, coming out in you know now we're now it's coming to to a mass public the same thing has happened in the past in earlier new tech generations you know whether it be the personal computer or the dot com boom um, or mobile you know there was a lot that was brewing before that then suddenly reaches a tipping point and now we're all talking about it yeah, it's fascinating. For those who want to read more about the kind of history that Margaret's talking about, she the book that she wrote is called The Code, which is sort of the best single volume history on, on Silicon Valley. One of the big differences, Cade Metz, between a lot of these earlier generations of, uh, of technologies that have grown out of Silicon Valley and the one right now is that the overall climate around technology in the future seems so much darker. You know, there's a lot of utopian visions embedded in you know, the rise of the chip makers in the 70s and, and 80s and the PC makers and early Internet folks and cyber utopians. Now you look around and it just seems like things are so much darker. Um, how do you think that's going to influence the actual uh, trajectory of these technologies? It will influence it will influence it in a huge way. This This is happening for a couple of reasons. One is that We've all lived through a relatively dark time when it comes to technology. There's been a lot of concern about the role of technology in our lives over the past seven or eight years or more related to social media uh, and the like. At the same time, these forces that were driving the rise of artificial intelligence have long been concerned with the darker side of things. This is this is a big part of Silicon Valley culture and the culture of developing AI, that as you build it, mm. you're not only looking to where it can be used in positive ways, but you're worried about how it could impact the world 
in negative ways. There's an entrenched community of people who are building the technology who are at the same time very concerned about how it could go wrong. And that may seem counterintuitive, but it's a real part of the culture. And you're seeing this today as people develop really powerful technologies and put them out. They're talking about how it can do wonderful things, but they're also talking about where it can even spin outside our, our control, where it can take jobs, where it can be used to spread disinformation. This is a huge part of the story. Yeah. Cade, what do you make of the argument that I've seen that the dark forecast, they're like, oh, my gosh, it's going to take all the jobs. It's going to do all the things that that's actually a kind of bank shot hype machine, you know, that by by projecting out how bad it could be, it actually highlights the power of the tools. That is a very real phenomenon, this course, sort of anti hype that turns out in the end uh, to actually be hype. Um, I would not discount that. Uh, at the same time, what we're starting to see is some really well-respected people who were skeptical of those claims, even just a year ago, starting to come out and say, I'm concerned too. Mm -hmm. There's some real stuff that is that is happening with these systems, and there's some real concern. Mm -hmm. You know, I will say that that is mostly focused on on the problem of disinformation, that these systems can be used uh, to distribute disinformation with a speed and an efficiency we've never seen before. We're, we're approaching a point where it's going to be hard to tell what we're seeing online is real and, and, and what's not. And that, that is a real and immediate concern. In the medium term, there's the job loss uh, concern. But th that is quickly building because of the way these systems are built. I mean, the thing that I want to underline here is that the technology is being built in a way that it never was in the past. As I said, these systems learn their skills on their own by analyzing data. And all that means is that you can improve these systems at a much faster rate. And that's why you're seeing uh, these concerns about uh, the future now coming to the fore. If folks want to, you know, Cade reference, you know, very well respected figures, maybe people could check out some interviews that Jeff Hinton, that's G-E-O-F-F -F, Hinton has done recently on some of these things. Um, Margaret, I want to ask you this. One listener writes in to say, shouldn't we be slowing down the development of AI and put legal protections and restrictions in place to prevent AI from being used for disinformation and lies? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a live question. I think, you know, the, the other thing that's new um, to about what's going on right now is that you have very large companies and um, a, a lot of money chasing AI and wanting to monetize this and you know find a way to make to make a business out of it, which is when th that speed can become dangerous. Um, you know, regulation's really tricky. Uh, we've had we've already seen Sam Altman of OpenAI go to Capitol Hill and testify and um, in support of you know please regulate us. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but you know what exactly that looks like um, proactively is challenging. 
challenging. I mean, look, no longer, uh, you know, looking back into American history, even well before this, the current age of computer hardware and software and tech, uh, you know, to the 120 years ago, the the push to regulate uh, the big businesses and the high tech businesses of the 19th century, like railroads and oil, um, were kind of, uh, you know, after the fact, right? After they grow large and the the downstream harms are found. It's it is a challenge, but I think that the this the still kind of very very loosely loosely regulated space that the companies that are building and trying to monetize these models are occupying the fact that we still don't kind of have this 1990s regime of regulation the, uh, of the internet that's still there is creates a lot of room and and a lot of danger now that the how is the question i think you know doing it in a way that can still um promote uh not only innovation but kind of the growth of innovative new companies and allow the 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 engine to keep on going in a productive way while still finding a way to channel the dangers. That is the tricky part. And I'm glad that I'm not a senator or a member of Congress who has to figure that out. Yeah. You know, Max, one of the interesting things about NVIDIA, right, is they're kind of the underlying technology. So any of the different kind of applications that might be, you know, um, uh, opened up or shut down um, by regulation seems like they might be able to to surf that. The, The question is, how likely do you think that there's like what does a boom mean uh, in AI for the Bay Area specifically, right? I mean, you, even if it had other repercussions elsewhere, if these companies are doing this work here, is that that's good for us, right? Or is it not? I mean, it's certainly good for uh, the economy, and at least in the in what I see as the short run. Uh, I mean, from from my reporting and from what I've observed in the last uh, few months, uh, there, there's an undeniable amount of excitement in the developer community. Uh, I remember visiting, I was- I was. You mean you know, real estate developer in this case, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in the software developer community. Uh, so I was I was at a uh, an AI conference uh, that was geared towards towards these folks uh, a couple of weeks ago. And and there was like, it was a, it was a kind of a grassrootsy kind of sense that where people were, were, you know, were trying to start what I would call small businesses with big ideas. And they were, and they were all there talking with, with each other um, and trying to form meaningful connections to, to, to launch, launch businesses. I mean, there's no doubt that this is good for, I mean, big tech, like I'll put it this way, Alexis, every company prior to December of, of last year, some companies had AI strategies. Uh, Alphabet had an AI strategy. Google, you know, Google had an AI strategy. Meta had an AI strategy. A lot of the big tech companies do. What has changed is that now that now every company needs to have an AI strategy, or at least believes it needs to have an AI strategy. Uh, at the board level, they're talking about it, um, and so you know, at, at, at companies that aren't tech businesses, so uh, at McDonald's or you know wherever. Uh, even smaller companies are gonna are gonna need to do that. So I, I think that I think there's a pretty clear there's a pretty clear impact well beyond technology and within tech. I mean, within tech, the the, the largest tech businesses. I mean, they're all racing to to mm-hmm. against each other to develop products to try to figure out how to make technologies like generative AI and other and other sort of machine learning tech uh, work within their existing products. And that that's going to need more, more people. I mean, basically, so certainly in the short run, this, this seems to be a good thing. Um, I I was speaking with a a company that that recruits engineering talent and they were telling me how difficult it is to find, 
top quality engineers in, in the in the Bay Area. So mm -hmm. if that yeah. gives you some sense of it, uh, I and plus, like I was, like I was alluding to earlier, not only on the labor side, but but new businesses are being started. Uh, I would imagine a pretty rapid clip. Yeah, let's uh, go to uh, let's bring in some college here. Brian in Santa Clara, welcome. Oh, thanks. I was just wondering how unassailable is NVIDIA's lead uh, due to CUDA? Isn't is it really focused on training only or inference? I mean, there's a lot of cloud players that have their own hardware, and Intel and AMD have their own hardware as well, but they don't have the CUDA mm -hmm. uh, backbone, so to speak. So how is that looking? Yeah, Cade, this is a this was a great question for you. I mean, I you know I saw some estimate, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Cade. Ninety five percent market share for Nvidia at this point. Is that right? That that sounds that sounds about right. And it's a really it's a great question, and it's a, a really interesting one because for years I've been covering this, and I've been waiting for the challengers. Um, to really take, you know, a large part of the market. And that just has not happened. Like, mm -hmm. even if you look at the research, like so much of what happens in AI is published in research papers on a daily basis. All the research uses NVIDIA, right? You don't see these other chips, which are out there, even show up in the research papers, um, you know, much less, you know, the applications that are starting to um, show up in our daily lives. And it is about that, that software layer that NVIDIA offers. It's its like a comfort blanket to those <laughs> um, software developers uh, that Max was talking about, right? It's just what everyone uses, whether you're coming in and starting a company, whether you're working for a, 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 one of the big tech giants, this is what you use. The, the one exception at this point is a Google chip called the TPU, which Google uses mm -hmm. in large numbers itself. Uh, other developers can use that through Google's cloud computing services, but it's a relatively small player next to this giant uh, NVIDIA who really has a hold on the market at this point. Yeah. Uh, Kim writes in to say, as a longtime gamer, I was familiar with NVIDIA's graphics products. However, the forward thinking involved in spending billions in developing CUDA is impressive. It may allow them to control another choke, choke point in AI development. Trip in uh, Half Moon Bay also wants to talk about graphics. Welcome, Trip. Hi. Uh, yeah, I think you kind of answered my question about because I've followed computer gaming for decades and I've built computers using AMD GPUs and using NVIDIA GPUs and they've always gone back and forth uh, in the gaming community as who's got the best chip at the moment. But everybody in the world of AI and blockchain stuff is talking about NVIDIA, not AMD. So it sounds like CUDA is the difference. What is it about CUDA that uh, makes it so much better than what AMD offers? Such an interesting question. And I, you know, Kate, if I can extend this a tiny bit, it's like, is this just kind of first mover advantage? Everyone uses word because everyone uses word kind of thing. Or are there aspects of it that actually allow for the more efficient use of the hardware resources that are available in one of these GPUs? You hit the nail on the head. They were there first. And Max talked about the history of this. You got to give them credit for seeing where this was going, not only in the beginning when they decided to create CUDA and give developers a way of building all sorts of applications that could run on these chips. But once 
you know, that first AI boom hit around 2012, they really jumped on this area, as, as did a lot of the big companies, Google, Microsoft, Facebook, NVIDIA jumped on this as well. They saw where things were going and they really focused on this market at a time when not everyone realized where this would go over the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, let's bring in Leland with a, uh, an interesting question. Uh, Leland in Berkeley, welcome. Hi. So my question is two parts. Are the same NVIDIA chips used for cryptocurrency mining and AI models? And... Is there some correlation between the rapid rise of NVIDIA's valuation and the hype train kind of moving from cryptocurrency to AI? Such an interesting question. Um, Max, do you want to do you want to take this one? I I believe the answer to that is yes. Um, and is that kind of been a little bit of uh, uh, juice for NVIDIA as these AI applications have gotten up and running? Uh, yeah, the, the answer is yes, uh, to, to some extent. Uh, the, the server chips, the, the AI-specific chips, I, I don't believe are as widely adopted by cryptocurrency miners. So NVIDIA makes its graphics chips, um, which are, you know, range in price from a few hundred dollars to a few thousand. Uh, its server chips are an order of magnitude more expensive than that. Um, and typically, I, from what I understand, at least cryptocurrency miners don't don't love those. Um, but it, it had... Um, it, it, cryptocurrency has benefited NVIDIA in the past, um, and it's caused it some problems as well uh, because people started buying uh, chips, the, the the gaming chips for for uh, crypto mining. Uh, and then when crypto prices fluctuate, as they tend to do, uh, the, the demand for those dried up hmm. and NVIDIA ran into some problems because the market was essentially flooded with with old uh, old GPUs uh, that, huh. that cryptocurrency miners didn't want. So this was t- 2017, 2018 I'm talking about. Um, and the, the issue for NVIDIA is that it can't really, the, the, the executives can't figure out what people are using their chips for. There, there's just no way to do it. So uh, they don't really always know exactly what's being, you know, what's fueled by crypto and what's what's fueled by gaming. What they have done is a couple of things. They, they've, they've launched a crypto specific chip. Um, so they've modified one of their GPUs, you know, in, in a similar way that they've modified them to do AI applications. Uh, and they they launched that I think a couple of years ago now, and then they've also disabled um, uh, disabled the uh, crypto. They, they made it really hard to mine cryptocurrency on their current GPUs. Huh. Uh, so so interesting. A couple of things. Yeah, Max Cherney, senior tech reporter for Silicon Valley Business Journal. Thanks so much for that. We're also joined this morning by Margaret O'Mara, professor of American history at the University of Washington, author of the book The Code, and Cade Metz, technology reporter for the New York Times been covering AI and machine learning for a long time. What questions do you have about the future of AI? And what do you think an AI boom could mean for the Bay Area? Is this our exit ramp from the doom spiral? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com.
We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the company NVIDIA, which is now valued by investors at almost a trillion dollars, largely because of it's the underlying technology for a lot of the AI applications like ChatGPT that have gotten people so excited. We're joined by Cade Metz, technology reporter for The New York Times, Margaret O'Mara, professor of American history at the University of Washington, and Max Cherney, senior tech reporter for Silicon Valley Business Journal. Uh, Listener Steve writes in to say, I'm retired, but I ran a big analytics and data science team at a major Bay Area tech company in my last role. I could see that many mundane analytics tasks could have been performed by AI, not available at the time. That would not have replaced anyone on my team, just freed their time up for more interesting strategic and creative tasks. The invention of the laundry machine and the dishwashing machine were essentially, quote, AI machines that no one, in retrospect, would have suggested were job killers. But I bet there were similar concerns at the time. Um, Margaret Omar, I feel like this one is kind of teed up for you uh, in, a, in an interesting way. I mean, how should we be thinking about these things? Are Is the you know laundry machine or the dishwashing machine a good parallel or a, or not? I think that's a useful parallel and, and, and kind of maybe good to sort of keep in mind in addition to the, the conversation is focused a lot on kind of creative thinking being displaced by machine. And certainly there are a lot of things, um, uh, you know, generative art and and text and all these things that, that cause alarm um, as well as excitement. Um, but, you know, thinking about the things, the automated tasks that humans do that you don't have to have a human to do. Um, um, I, look, I'm a college professor who just spent the last school year with chat GPT <laughs> kind mm-hmm. of hovering over my classroom. But mm-hmm. I think what's really interesting is kind of what it can do and what it can't do um, in its current iteration. Um, and and there are a lot of things that are very, um, you know, filling out forms at the doctor's office or writing, you know, kind of uh, d- the same form letter again and again and again. Those sorts of things perhaps are something that could be automated and, yes, free up human beings to do what only human beings can do uh, and do the more critical thinking. I think the, and look, all of these tools are made by humans too. Let's keep in mind that nothing is truly automated. um, Nothing is truly artificial. And so the choices made about how to design these programs, as well as how they're utilized and how they're framed. I mean, I think that, you know, back to, you know, Cade's noting the kind of uh, apocalyptic mindset of -hmm. of the, uh, of the uh, machine learning community that's uh, certainly, um, and uh, to their credit, have, you know, kind of come out and said, this could be, you know, as we're introducing these things, be careful, this is not fully cooked. Um, but at the same time, you know, the more that this is emphasized, that that not only should we not take it at first value, but also this is an an, auto, an, an automator of things. Look, we used to have um, uh, people worked as secretaries <laughs> typing, and that, that job class by and large has almost disappeared, even though it was a very large white collar job mm. class only a half century ago. So thing, you know, that it is always dynamic. Technology is always making the labor market dynamic. This predates digital computing and it will continue. This is an ongoing process. 
Here's my uh, prediction, Margaret, that the strange zine produced in San Francisco called Processed World, which is all about like white collar job automation produced in the mm-hmm. 1980s and 90s. I feel like that's going to be an amazing dissertation, <laughs> possibly Ooh. even at the University of Washington, because it's all about this first round of kind of white collar office automation, which you know a lot of us really forget. I mean, Excel and like adding things like that used to be somebody's job. And now Excel can do, you know. All these columns right. in a second. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, let's bring in uh, Daphne in Sacramento. Welcome, Daphne. Hi. Good morning. Hi. Good morning. I just want to say I love your show, and that's why I called in. I listen regularly. Um, I want to piggyback on the, the historian professor and what you commented on freeing humans up to do other tasks. I'm a registered nurse and have been for 30 years, so I'm a Gen Xer, and I'm in my PhD as a scientist and faculty member in nursing. And what we had in the past was we paper charted at the beginning of my career, then we transitioned, and we're still in this transition period into using um, digital charting. Everyone pretty much uses it, but what we found is that it takes up a huge amount of our time and energy and focus in both offices and in hospital rooms from the patients because we have to attend to what's on the screen, which is a lot of applications mm-hmm. that help us be safe, that help us retrieve data, that help us uh, fulfill regulatory oversight, which is huge in the healthcare industry. And so my comment is, is that I've been talking about some type of an AI helper for years, that it would be really helpful for us to talk to an assistant that could retrieve data, retrieve your latest lab test before your surgery to see if something has changed and also to chart what we're talking about, the substance of it with the patient, while we actually touch the patient and look into their face. Because the thing that humans do really well, we do with other people in social groups. Mm. And we need to see each other's faces and talk and communicate. And people in healthcare, when you're getting treated, really need that hands-on face uh, communication to feel more uh, calmer, to feel less hostile. The pandemic really exacerbated our shortages in physicians and nurses, and it also made it worse and exacerbated our issues with technology because we have to spend so much time looking at a screen in order to chart and to Mm -hmm. do all the things that we have to do that it's caused us to not have that time with people. So now we have nurses and planning mass exodus from the profession. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of suicide with physicians and physician residents. So we're having a lot of psychological issues in these professions, and I really feel, and the research is saying, is a lot of it is related to where we went into a profession to be with people, but we're with tech. And although I love tech, and I think AI is going to have a lot of positive impacts, and we certainly Mm -hmm. were impacted by disinformation in healthcare related to vaccinations and other issues. But we do know that we are in a digital charting world. We're in a digital world. We have so much data on our patients that we can't access in real time to make good clinical decisions that I think it's going to be really helpful to doctors and nurses in all aspects of healthcare. And we are looking forward, I am looking forward to seeing that, even though it's the classroom issue, as the other professor said. We have a lot of transitioning (laughs) to do there as well. Hey, Daphne in Sacramento, thank you so much for the real-world example of a, a place where perhaps this technology could help free people up to do what we do best, Daphne was saying, uh, being with other human beings in a, in a social context. 
When we talk about deploying in an area like healthcare, you know, these mission critical things, uh, you know, Kate, I think this goes to you. Another listener writes in to say, do you think it's a cop out to say we need regulations yet provide no suggestions on how it should be done? Congress doesn't have the deep understanding required to regulate AI as those within the tech community. What about the harm done to populations of color due to inherent bias? I feel we should be more concerned. And okay, the reason I'm sending this to you is there have been a lot of discussions within the industry itself on the outputs of AI essentially laundering bias that existed in the data sets that were that were used to create them. And you know, when we think about a, a healthcare setting or something like that, it feels like the the stakes become, you know, properly clear. They do. It's, a, again, a very real phenomenon. And we've seen this played out in very public ways that these systems, because they learn from data, they learn from our flaws. They learn from our biases. Um, they learn from our hate speech. And you see this come out in systems, whether it's chatbots or image generators or in healthcare applications. Um, you know, one of the prime applications potentially for this technology is the ability to identify illness and, and disease in medical scans. So you can analyze retinal scans or MRIs or CAT scans or the like that contain signs of illness and disease and systems can learn to identify that. But with those systems, and this might not be obvious, you've got to make sure you collect data from a wide range of patients. Um, and because illness and disease and um, the, the propensities can differ from uh, in different parts of the population. And that's something that the industry has been aware of for a long time and in some cases has been working to solve, um, but in many ways has not quite solved it. It's a hard problem to solve, even if you're aware of it. And it's something that certainly uh, we need to continue to focus on. Mm -hmm. You know, Max, when we think about a trillion dollar, near trillion dollar valuation for this company, it's really a bet on the future of AI and how it might develop and, you know, the amount of chips that NVIDIA will sell in the future, discounted to today, et cetera. So to you, what kind of world would we have to be living in for NVIDIA to basically live up to this prediction that its share prices are making? Wow, that's a that's an interesting question. Um, well, certainly it's going to have to have to achieve its its forecasted revenue for the next you know several quarters. Uh, if um, the the executives uh, when it reported earnings um, just a few weeks ago said that they were they projected it was going to make a billion or eleven billion dollars. Uh, in overall revenue in in the company's fiscal second quarter, which is an order of magnitude larger than the company usually pulls in. Uh, mm. Just to, just by way of example, that's more money than they they generated in all of 2020 put together. Mm. Uh, so uh, to to grow into to grow into that number, I mean, this demand for their AI chips, this 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 thirst for for AI compute is going to have to continue for the foreseeable future, uh, not just next quarter or you know next year, but but for for quite some time. Uh, I I think I think that's you know that that's that's a simple way of putting it. Um, mm -hmm. The company's also going to have to continue to innovate. 
the, you know, one of the things that chip businesses, any chip business um, absolutely must do, at, and, and they, they all spend a lot of money on it, is, is, is develop new technology and, and innovative new technology. And in the chip industry, that's incredibly expensive, more so than I think most other fields. Uh, just by way of example, most chip businesses spend roughly 20% of their uh, annual revenue on R&D, NVIDIA spends 26 or 27%. Um, and to put a number on that, that's roughly $7.4 billion. Like, just think about that amount of money. That's that's annually what they what they pour into coming up with new ideas, right? And they devote 20,000 of their 26,000 employees to R&D. So... Yeah, NVIDIA has a has a, an enormous first mover advantage, but it, it, in in the chip business, it's it's innovate or die, and they there are a number of competitors that um, that are at least you know have new ideas and and may be able to chip away at their market share. And it seems as though the AI the AI pie is going to be big enough for at least several other businesses. As hmm. Cade was talking about earlier, Google has developed its own very competitive uh, artificial intelligence chips that it, it doesn't sell them, but you can rent them sort of through their, their cloud business. Uh, other big tech companies have as well too. Amazon has its own line of, of internal uh, AI chips. Uh, I believe Meta is working on them if, if memory serves. Uh, but the, the, there are also startups that are working on problems that that a, a general processor like what NVIDIA produces, which means that it's capable of doing any kind of a lot of AI, a lot of different kinds of AI computing. Uh, there are other companies uh, in Silicon Valley, like Samba Nova is 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 making a, a different kind of AI system. Uh, there's a company that I was interviewing with or talking with uh, a few weeks ago that's that's developed a sort of image processing uh, chip that's really low power and good for things like security cameras or you know any any mm -hmm. kind of image recognition. So there's sort of avenues um, that that other chip companies can take that there's portions of the of the sort of compute landscape um that that other businesses might be able to capture uh or the, you know another business i mentioned was cerebrus which is, has thus far focused on uh, sort of scientific ai applications which is essentially where nvidia got its start yeah uh, way 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 back so you know Cade, i i kind of would like you to reflect on kind of what feels sort of remarkable to me which is that san francisco specifically uh and the bay area kind of generally really have become place for AI, even as it feels like, in general, the tech industry has decentralized a little bit from, you know, Silicon Valley. Um, what is that true, first of all, that that really, you know, AI is still like centered here? And what do you make of that? It is true. We, we're going to publish a piece in the New York Times probably this week about how after so many people left the Bay Area, uh, during the pandemic, uh, tech entrepreneurs and VCs and the like, a lot of them are coming back because this is a center of gravity for this particular field. And there are so many people here working on it. Um, Hayes Valley in, in San Francisco, the San Francisco neighborhood, has become a center uh, for people working in this area. You've got these big companies and up and coming companies, which are so important to this. Google, uh, of course, being a prime example. OpenAI, the mm -hmm. startup behind ChatGPT, they're based um, not far from KQED. Mm -hmm. um, you do have, have a community here that is important to the technology. It's not the only center of gravity. Um, there are important centers in places like Toronto, which I mentioned earlier. But um, this is the one um, 
for the most part, where people really want to be physically. Yeah. Margaret, you know, let's say that the Bay Area is, you know, kind of the host of, of a boom here that extends over a long period of time, you know, comparable to, you know, the Internet boom or PCs or uh, chips before it. I mean, what are the things that you think, you know, as different as each of those industries has been, what do you think we can learn from, you know, the abstraction of these different booms and, and bus cycles for, you know, what's happening right now? Yeah, well, every every successive tech boom has brought in more people, new people, and generated more money. Um, even, you know, after the dot-com bust, uh, the Valley was, the sort of venture capital in, in the Valley in total was far, far above what it was before the dot-com boom, even with the celebrated failure of some big dot-com companies mm-hmm. at the end of the 90s and, and early 2000s. So yes, and this is certainly what we're seeing, you know, we've had a, a bad news year um, in tech with layoffs and um, various other bad news stories, but there is still so much money in the system. Um, a caller earlier referred to the hype train moving from crypto to AI. I mean, mm-hmm. part of this is the, the, the excitement around crypto of only a year ago go or so, um, drew a lot of people, young people in and a lot of money and a lot of energy. And that energy is now getting redirected. So every successive boom leaves its mark. And and it's and it's all about the people at the end of the day. It's people coming in and going out. And, and you know, there has been something of a reset, the combination of the pandemic and the um, and the 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 turn of the tide in the market in the last year has, uh, you know, moved things around, maybe created a little more oxygen, maybe made rent slightly cheaper in some parts of the city and the Bay Area, maybe. Um, and now that's getting filled up. But it's interesting, you know, it is to sort of underscore what Max was noting about the cost of, you know, being a major player on the hardware side. Um, that's still dominated by big big companies. And then on the, you know, software side or on the app side, that's where a lot of new enterprises are trying Mm -hmm. to get in. But there's, you know, what's interesting, I think here is that there are a lot of the same companies and a lot of the same people, Um, Mm -hmm. people who've been around and maybe, you know, aren't as many new, new people, um, a new generation in the way that .com and PC did. That's interesting. Uh, One, a couple last listener comments. Um, one listener writes in to say, back in 2015, my 11-year-old did a fourth-grade assignment, which was to pick a stock and do a presentation for the class. He chose NVIDIA back when it was approximately $11 a share. Sure wish I could have invested in his research assignment. Another listener writes, I just can't get over the irony that if AI brings the demise of humanity, it will be due to the input of humanity. We've been talking about NVIDIA, the Bay Area's latest near-trillion-dollar company, with Margaret O'Mara, professor of American history at the University of Washington, Cade Metz, technology reporter for The New York Times, and Max Cherney, senior tech reporter for Silicon Valley Business Journal. I learned so much from you guys today. Thank you so much. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.